back in the day, it was everybody, oh, God, the bank is doing this to me and doing that. It's real helpful to grow up and say, you know what? I'm the one that signed up for this. All right, welcome to another interview at the Deals Today podcast. I'm your host, Paul, at realestateaudios.com. And today I'm interviewing Peter Apostles, who's not well-known outside of California, but inside of California, he's a local investor who's very sought after by REI clubs. They want him to speak at them and engage with his with their audience because he's he has a lot of wisdom to say, but he's not, he doesn't have a glamorous story. He doesn't have a story where, hey, he started flipping and then he made millions in a year. No, uh, unlike all the YouTube gurus out there that are um, saying otherwise, <laughs> it took him a long time to get to where he's at. A lot of failing and figuring it out and seeing what, how things work. Today, he's a, he's a buy and hold investor. He always was a buy and hold investor. You're gonna, he's going to talk a little bit about his story, how he, he lost some things at, during the crash, picked himself up after, learned how to actually invest in real estate after the crash, after he's been flipping and, and holding on to a few properties. And he is a type of guy who says he likes to buy houses slowly, meaning he's not out trying to do a volume game. He's out hammering away with actual motivated sellers for the long run. He's waiting for them to actually be ready and he's always following up with them he deals with one house at a time meaning it's the famous john schwab book building wealth one house at a time where he's not playing the volume game he's just building his portfolio slowly flipping a house here and there for the income now and so he's going to reveal in this interview the three keys to doing this business successfully there are, you know, everybody talks about the one way to flip houses, whatever it is, but he says there's there's three keys that if you don't know these keys, you're going to be lost throughout the, your real estate venture. Know these three keys and he's going to explain them thoroughly in this interview. And if you're not on my email list, I highly encourage you to get on and go to realestateaudios.com, sign up where I do daily emails, tidbits, advice, tips on business, mindset, marketing, and investing and copywriting, all for the real estate investor, no matter your career level here. So go to realestateaudios.com and sign up there. All right, let's get to it. Peter, tell us about what you're doing today with real estate given COVID. Are you still out looking for deals or are you sitting back right now? I am still out looking for deals. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up maybe in the news about COVID or impending political changes or not changes. But let me run this by you. Most of the deals that I do end up buying are not what you call a short sales cycle. Explain that. Well, let, let's say in another business, uh, you know, I used to be in the technology solutions business. So a sales cycle might be 30 days or 40 days or, uh, you know, 90 days. I, in real estate, you know, things can take six months, 12 months, 24 months, or even longer. So just because I'm marketing for deals right now doesn't mean that I'm going, oh, wow, COVID's terrible. Let me stop looking for deals. You never want to stop talking to potential sellers. So, and what usually turns a potential seller into a seller is some kind of a change. Okay, change in their job, change in their uh, location, change in their economics. So based on that, when 
has there been a better time to talk to sellers than right now? Because if you talk to them tomorrow, the likelihood of some kind of life change for them, based on all the chaos we got flying around in the next 12 to 24 months, is probably higher than it's ever been. So, and you know, a lot of that is a mindset type of a thing for myself. But when I look back historically at the things I bought, you know, the really great things I bought, they took some time. How long are we talking about here? (laughs) Well, (laughs) it varies. I've bought, you know, talked to a seller and ended up buying from them the, the last real good deal I bought. I mean, just a crazy margin. That was about two and a half years from the day, day that I talked to the guy, uh, but he wasn't ready yet. He wasn't ready yet. So finally, he had some big changes in his life. And because I kind of stuck with him and followed up, and I didn't even think I was doing that good of a job following up, but I did a good enough job following up that when the day came, I got the first crack at it. Okay. So, you know, in the meantime, two and a half years went by. And when the phone did ring, guess what? I was still ready to buy a good deal. What did you do with that deal? I uh, put a hard money, long-term hard money loan on it at 6.9%. That's from the Norris Group, who I highly recommend as a hard money lender. I've been borrowing from them for you know over 12 years. And I had to do some repairs. Part of the reason I got a great deal uh, was that the house had some open issues with the county of Los Angeles. And it's a $1,500 rental with a $630 payment on it. Do you hold on to all these deals? Or like, what do we look at? I, I know that you flip them. We're looking at, you know, 50% you hold, 50% you flip them. No, it's not 50-50. It really has to do with what's going on. So at the end of the day, I, I'd like to hold whatever I can. So if I can make those numbers work, then I would prefer to hold. So you're in Southern California right now, where everybody's saying that in it's 2020, there's no cash flowing properties. I mean, they've been saying that for years, but you're still finding these cash flowing properties and using a hard money lender to buy it. So explain how you could even get that. Well, the, the property needed a certain amount of work, so it was not financeable. So that's one strike against it. It had open issues uh, with building and safety with the County of Los Angeles. That's another strike against it. So I just bought it at a really good margin. And um, when I did the monthly numbers on that loan, it, it worked out. What do you typically, what's your, the buffer that you do that you have to have in there when you come to buying these, these uh, properties you're going to hold? Do you mean on a equity or loan to value basis? Sorry, no, no. I, I mean from uh, I'm, I'm including your maintenance, property management fees, et cetera. It depends uh, per on month. the neighborhood, anywhere from probably 60 to 70%. So a 30 to 40% expense ratio. A lot of it okay. depends on the product type, the neighborhood. Has that, that 30% expense, so you're paying per year 30% expense, that has been consistent and you've been doing this for over 12 years, you said? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, a bunch of experienced guys... And I told my friend the other day, what I notice is the, the older they are, the higher the expense rate is. <laughs> so, and what does that mean? That means guys that have managed a ton of doors over a long period of time are pretty conservative. And in the beginning, I was real optimistic. And it's easy to be optimistic about 
expenses, vacancy rates, evictions, uh, until you actually get on the field of play and start getting your ass kicked a little bit. So how do you reconcile that 30% your expense rate from people, some of the older guys that even John Schwab talks about, he has a 50 to a 60% expense rate? Well, 30% was back when I was a lot more optimistic. And it also has to do with the neighborhood, you know, and the house itself. Some things are just don't lend themselves to staying occupied for a long time. Do you have some, some things that give you warning signs to keep out for that specific warning? I mean, having tenants that aren't going to stay long in that neighborhood, what are some things that you do? Well, how about a house that doesn't have a garage? <laughs> so I've, I've got one of those. Um, the garage was converted to a, you know, a big family room. Uh, houses that are just the configuration is not so great. You know, I've got a couple kind of thousand square foot houses that the living room is really kind of small and it just doesn't lay out really well. Houses that are just in kind of tough neighborhoods. I've got one that sits on a cul-de-sac right now. I've got a really great tenant there, but you know, when I look at the family across the street at the way they carry on, I go, ah, you know, you can experience turnover in those situations. If you don't mind me asking, how much, how many properties are you holding right now in your portfolio? About a couple dozen. And are they all cash flowing, or do you ever play the kind of um, negative cash flow game here in California? Play the negative cash flow game? <laughs> no, I don't play that game. <laughs> Was that a game show? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, lack of better words, uh, there. I mean, here in Southern California, people bank and sit on the appreciation. That's Neg- not investing, that's speculating. Speculating, yeah. So to, to, to answer that question, no, I have no properties like that. Would I ever do that? Sure, I would if I was able to capture a nice huge slice of equity. So if, if I did my calculations and my maximum payment was 750 and I did, you know, we did some problems like this um, in my class last night that if you can capture a lot of equity, you might go up a little bit on your monthly payment and take less cash flow. But I don't own any properties that fit that criteria. All my properties have good cash flow and good equity. So it's not always about, I mean, it's always about cash flow, but it's not always about cash flow. I, I guess what I'm getting at is in bigger pockets, and we talked about this before we, we recorded, bigger pockets has a way of teaching. And one of those rules of thumb uh, that everybody talks about is a one or 2% rule. Does those rules apply to you ever? And, and if not, like, What's what is What's the one your... or 2% rule? Oh, you mean the 1% rule on cash flow? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. 1% of yeah, the sure. retail value. Does that apply to you and apply here to California? Does to the properties that I, that I hold. You know, a lot of those properties I bought, you know, quite a while back. Some of them I didn't. I think it's a good rule. It's, you know, something I was taught by the, by the old school guys when I first got in and I kind of got that in my mind. So um, in terms of, you know, California is, oh, it's so, you know, now look, in terms of some of the laws and changes in laws and the way that landlords are viewed and, and treated, you know, yes, California can be a, a tough environment there. And if you want to, Kind of do some comparison there. I, I would suggest that uh, Bruce Norris and um, his website, his radio show, I guess, which now you'd call a podcast, you know, he's done the research on the differences between 
California and some of the other states. But in terms of just adopting a mindset of you can't do this in California, let's go to Indianapolis or whatever the boutique market is at the time. No, California is a, a big place. And so I'm still in L.A. County, but I'm in, you know, definitely a, a lower price range. But there's all kinds of places where you can be. And I think that these things are attainable by, you know, a number of different methods. So going back to what Bruce Norris said, then do you know the differences that he that he found between here and other states? Well, his specific example is Florida. I mean, his charts have indications for other places like Texas and, you know, some of, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe it's Florida, Texas, Oregon, uh, Nevada, Arizona is, you know, where people are migrating to out of California. So, you know, it's just looking at, we've got some things going on here, like uh, rent control and the discussion about Prop 13 being taken out of there. And, you know, last time I checked, uh, we voted twice on rent control. The people of California voted it down. And, uh, you know, whatever magic happens up there in Sacramento, it, it just got enacted. So that seems to be the direction that California is going in politically. So that's something that, you know, I think the way Bruce terms it is the rules of engagement have changed, you know, kind of some real hard and fast things that we could always count on about the way real estate, the dynamics of real estate have the, the possibility of being changed. And, you know, other states like Florida don't have a state tax and uh, you know, a comparison of what it costs to get a house permitted in Florida and get a house permitted here in California and or Texas. You know, we've got some challenges here in California. So knowing, knowing all that, knowing that the legislation here is hammering down investors and made investors, you know, bad guys, evil guys, um, landlords evil. Do you see yourself ever going out of California, buying property out of California? That's a really good question. And the one thing I don't feel confident about is going out of state and dealing with everything remotely. If I was to buy out of state, I would need to be in the market that I'm buying in for, you know, at least, I don't know, a week every month or I, I'm just not a, a big believer. I, you know, I had rentals in Vegas before and used a property manager. And so, yes, I do think that there could be some higher ground and really to diversify. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what the Norris Group talks about is not, you know, just sell everything California, but maybe, um, you know, sell some things, you know, your lower, maybe your lower properties, harder to manage properties and uh, exchange that into, you know, another market that carries some other be benefits, sort of like, you know, a diversification play. And, and um, so, yeah, I could see myself doing that. Yeah. Now I want to go back a little bit about your story in the beginning. I, I know you, you bought a property bef before you ever were like declaring yourself as an investor and learning about all these things. Can we talk about like some of the mistakes that you made back then? Because I think there's a big gap. People see you, Peter, and they think they want to be like you. But I want to talk about the big gap between that when you started to where you are now, the mistakes you made. You quit your job pretty early on, right? Oh, yeah. Sure. Was that a right choice for you? Well, first of all, I, I don't think people look at me and say they want to be like me. And if they do, please have give, give me a call so I can straighten them out. I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. 
Yes, I quit my corporate job in 2004 because basically I was a genius. You know, my uh, property I bought in 2001 had a whole heap of equity on it. And so I decided I'm not putting this tie on every every morning and coming in and sitting here having meetings with these dumbbells. I'm going to be a real estate investor. How many properties did you own at that time? Oh, one. (laughs) Okay, so you had some gusto there. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, being positive and optimistic, yeah, it was gusto, you know? So, and it's pretty interesting, you know, how did I think that was going to work? I didn't know enough to even be able to answer that question. You know, looking back, I don't think I would have been able to get into the business and hold a full-time job. I didn't see that. And I had all of this equity. You know, at the time, I don't know, probably a couple hundred thousand or more in equity. And I had low overhead. So like, let's, let's do this. Let's get this going. But, you know, that was 2004. So I don't have to probably tell anybody, you know, what happens between 2004 and 2008. You so know. what did you do to scrape by? You quit your job. Were you, were you flipping at the time? No, no. I bought hold properties in Vegas. And they cash flowed enough for you to live on? No, they didn't. I had a bunch of equity in the bank. Don't forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're trying to make this make sense and, you know, like something you could tell your wife and, you know, you're going down the wrong road. This mm-hmm. was, you know, reckless, uneducated moves, but they led me to a great place. So coincidentally, a lot of my mentors have stories where things didn't go so well. And their first go round was a big challenge. Who are some of those mentors? Who are some of your great mentors? Well, Bruce Norris. So um, Bruce has got, you know, the beginning of his career was really helpful to me to hear his story. And, you know, I've heard it a million times and it never gets old to me. Mike Cantu is another guy that I met through Bruce Norris that, you know, had some challenges when the market changed. Tony Alvarez is is another guy that some of his early challenges and, you know, kind of how he basically was just persistence. You know, you fall down, you, you get back up, figure out what you did wrong and try to do better the next time. And, you know, when you're beginning, that, that's really helpful. Hey, I screwed up, too. So, you know, you got a lot in common. Some stories are more drastic than others. And by the way, I, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, some of these guys knew what they were doing and still had a bad run at some point, but they recovered from the bad run. Hey, real quick, I want to introduce you to my free daily newsletter where I give out free daily tips to real estate investing strategies, marketing, and sales techniques to keep you, the part-time investor, moving forward every day. So head on over to realestateaudios.com and you'll get a free report along with that free daily newsletter. After 2008, were you one of those that lost arms and legs and lost everything? Well, I lost a lot, you know, in terms of losing everything. Yeah, I guess you could say that uh, because I had refinanced my primary residence to make investments and those investments didn't go well. I was able to sell out of some of them right in, in the nick of time. But um, yeah, the books didn't look good in 2008. Did you end up losing your primary residence? Well, what I did was I did a short sale on it. So I don't really call that a loss. I made a decision, you know, and this may be helpful for some people too, but, you know, back in the day, it was everybody, oh God, the bank is doing this to me and doing that. 
it's real helpful to grow up and say, you know what? I'm the one that signed up for this. At one point, I had a $230,000 mortgage on a house that was worth 700,000 bucks. So that house probably came down to 370 or 350, and it's probably back up to a million at this point. But I sure the hell wouldn't trade what I have now for that house. So that house was part of my learning experience. I drive by it, I have no emotional attachment to it, could care less. So I did negotiate a short sale on that one. And, uh, but, you know, subsequent to that is when I started to learn, I was lucky enough and, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to promote any individuals here, but I was lucky enough to hear Bruce Norris speak. And that was a starting point for me because I heard truth and, um, I could feel that the intent of this person, you know, he didn't have any stupid mentoring program. Uh, he wasn't a slick, uh, bullcrap guy. He's a straightforward guy, straight up and down, straight shooter. And so, you know, fortunately enough, I started to create a vision um, of how I could do this. Because before that, I was in the real estate business, but I just really, I just didn't have a direction. I wasn't really sure what to do. And you go to this seminar and that seminar and, you know, well, this month they tell you to do tax lien sales and the next month they tell you to do short sales and the next month they tell you to. And this guy has analyzed the market, analyzed the changes in the market, put together material telling you, hey, when the market does this, you do that. When the market changes and does this, now you should be doing something else. Okay, well, this is starting to make sense. So all my troubles led me to that. So... I never really focus back on all my troubles. I, I focus on, wow, I sure was fortunate. Whatever landed me there, I, I thank God, because it's not just that you collect assets or make money. It, you learn a skill set. You learn a, a trade. You have a career. And that's good. It's something to be proud of. And you know the people you run into, you treat them well and try to make sure other people have um, prosperity and make sure other people don't get hurt. So that's what came out of that whole experience. It sounds like it took you a long time to kind of figure, figure it out then for yourself, right? It sounds like, I mean, you made it seem like it was years and years until finally you made these mistakes and you met Bruce Norris and things clicked. Exactly. And it was a long time. It really was. It really was a long time, but you know, time goes by quickly. So, you know, in retrospect, it's like, wow, that's already, you know, 12 or, or more years ago. Probably so, you, you survived on that equity you had in your bank for that whole time. I'm just trying to put a picture in because yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, in- I sold some things. You know, I sold okay. some things too. So. So you were, I mean, you were rolling around in money, I guess. Not you, at you all. Were- <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. I was in bad shape, man. I was in bad shape. What do you think, besides what Bruce Norris taught you about, you know, shifting with, with, these, with the market, what what helped you just bounce back and start getting some traction? What are some key things? Well, the the can't remember the month. I think November, December of two thousand and eight. The Norris Group, Bruce Norris, used to do a three day boot camp, and I went to that. I went to that boot camp, and in that boot camp, I was taught some of the core skills you need to be a real estate investor. I think uh, in a discussion we had before. 
you told me that in all this real estate education that you really hadn't run across too many people talking about appraising. Yeah. And I said something like, you know, that's like saying that, um, you know, you're going surfing, but you don't know how to swim. And so I was taught that at that seminar and Bruce's appraiser at the time, Rick Solis, uh, you know, he did a really good presentation and then I just bothered the hell out of the guy for about a year. But if you don't know how to evaluate a property, you don't know how to appraise a property and assign value to it, then maybe somebody can teach me something, but I don't know how to operate in this business without that skill. I don't know how to operate in this business without uh, being able to do repair estimates. So that's when I started to put repetitions in on those skills, I started to gain confidence. And I went, oh, you know, this isn't about your gut feeling and about speculating, you know, oh God, if I buy this house, you know, they're going to build a the bullet train is going to come through here, you know, someday. All that other bull crap. Who assigns value to, to property? Banks send out appraisers to appraise property for their borrowers. That data is recorded in the MLS, and those sold properties and pending properties are evaluated, and value gets determined by an appraiser. So wouldn't it make sense that we kind of put the appraiser hat on? They say that somebody down the pipeline said that you value property better than these appraisers out there. Well, I don't know who said that, but the thing is, I'm doing a different job than they're doing. I'm looking at what they do because an appraiser gets sent out and they go, here's 400 bucks. Here's an address. Now come back with a value. And they look at the market conditions and, you know, they're trying to find sales data that substantiates a number, a value, okay? I'm doing the same thing because if I sell my house, the value of my house on resale will be determined by that same method in most cases. But I'm also an investor, so I'm looking at some other things when I do an appraisal. I'm probably looking a lot more closely at the standard uh, for repairs and the standard for finishes in a market. So, uh, you know, I'm looking at all these comps, but I'm also looking very closely, you know, if the range is 230 to 300, you know, what's the difference between the way a $300,000 sale looks in that market and how much a $230,000 sale looks? What kind of financing is used in this market? How long does it take to sell something? How much inventory is there? What's active? What's for sale today? I did an appraisal last night. There was one house available in a mile radius with a ton of sales activity. So if there's very little available, then, you know, you have a, so obviously right now we have a very low interest rate and very low inventory. So it is a hype, you know, a super seller's market. Going back to what you said uh, real quick, you mentioned repair costs and you have students. Repair costs is a big hang up. I think a lot of people don't know how to, how to do that when they first get started. They don't know where to start. How do you instruct somebody to figure out a repair cost when they're not handyman and not in construction? Well, let's go back to when I started. I had no idea really what to do. Now, again, I got some training at the Norris Group that was helpful, but you know that what we just talked about appraising and looking at what the higher comps sell for, the ones that sell fast, 
what they look like on the inside, that is what instructs me on how I'm going to fix my house. I look at the market standard. I look at what the market is raising their hand and saying, we'll take that house with that flooring and that countertop. And, and um, you know, it's not HGTV or, you know, oh, I, I'm creative. It's none of that. Okay. So in terms of telling somebody else, you know, one real basic thing you can do is you can, uh, I guess nowadays you would get online and just look at what flooring costs. Look at your market, you know, look at 50 sales in your market, you know, and by the way, that involves you determining what your market is. And that's a step that some people can go years without making that commitment or decision. But look at 50 houses, look at what stuff sells for, look at what it looks like. If you're looking to buy, fix and sell houses, aka flipping, you're not really in the business of seeing, you know, what can I get away with here? You just want to do a nice repair job. You got to make some decisions that are budgetary and you got to put the money in the right place. But you know, get real familiar with what it costs to do a kitchen. You can go right on Home Depot or Lowe's and put a kitchen together. Bottom so you- cabinets, upper cabinets, uh, countertops, sink, appliances. And you can really start to get a good ballpark of, of what the parts cost. I like that. And this is, that's a lot more than what people teach, which is just, hey, uh, do a rule of thumb following somebody other's example, like, you know, so many dollars per square foot. And, you know, that's what this guy pays. Instead, you're looking at what's actually selling. People are paying this much for new countertops, new flooring, and knowing what's needed inside the property you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Because even in my market, I've had agents tell me, oh, you should do this, this, and that, and the other thing. (laughs) And I'm going, really? How much are you kicking in on that? Because I'm just looking at the market. The, the market, the comps are very, they're very clear about what the market standard is. Now, if you move up to a million point two, a million point five, now you've got a different market. You've got different materials. You've got different finishes. Now, are you talking about here flipping or is this all tied in? I mean, when you're, when you're going to hold on to the property, are you doing a different grade level construction job for tenants? There is a difference. And I will say that my early rentals, I did a terrible job of fixing them. And I learned the hard way. So I can get away with this. I can get away with that. And, you know, I was trying to squeak these deals out and make them work. You know, if I had it to do all over again, look, you know, Bruce Norris even told me at the time, I think he was doing Moreno Valley and, and he rehabs his rentals like they're resales. Beautiful stuff. In my mind, I'm thinking, hey, pal, I can't afford that. So I did what I had to do. You know, I I cut all kinds of corners. I kept kitchen cabinets and just painted them instead of replacing them. I'm not proud to say that I just painted the front of the house. You get curb appeal, not side appeal and not back appeal, just just curb appeal. Um, I did all kinds of cheap crap. And as time goes on, you know, you make a little more money and you live through the experience of going, wow, being a cheapskate is not a good trait in this business. And I, I know sophisticated guys that are the biggest cheapskates in the world. I value my relationships with tradespeople. So if I'm always just trying to grind tradespeople to death, first of all, it's just not a lifestyle I want to live. And second of all, you know, the people that work for me know they're going to get paid. And, uh, you know, hey, they get ambitious sometimes. I've been working with the same contractor nine years. 
Yeah, I can see how it can be a high turnover for people who just keep pestering down your your prices. You know, I hate that. I, I hate. First of all, everybody around me's got to do good. I mean, the person that sold me the house, I want them to do good. I'm sure most people here would be mortified to find out that that I insist that if somebody brings me a deal and I resell it with them, that they get three percent. I know that's not the standard right now. You know, I know that's not the standard, but by paying an extra 0.5%, to me, I just look at it as marketing dollars because if that person gets another deal, you think they're going to bring it to me or, you know, the genius investor that's like, oh, I get it for 2%. Hey, at the end of the day, I just want everybody to be happy. Now, that being said, you know, the contracting world is full of sharks. And that's what happens. You, you get this atmosphere of, of mistrust. You know, uh, investors are cheap bastards and, and, and contractors are low lifes. And so you got to cultivate relationships. You know, the only way I know of doing it, I mean, I guess you could look everybody up on Yelp or whatever stuff you want to, but I'd just hand somebody a project and say, well, do this. I had a guy that did small jobs for me for a year and I handed him a, a full rehab and I had to fire him within about 10 days. <laughs> Didn't work out. I The money was not going to my project that I was giving him. And I know what that looks like. I drive by, I go, we're not getting anywhere here. I'm throwing money on it. It's not going anywhere. The money's going somewhere else. So I told him, get your tools and get the hell out of here. And, you know, that can be daunting to some people, but, you know, go ahead and get three different estimates and, and get a feel for people and take time to find out about people and what they do, what they're trying to accomplish in their career and how you can help them. I think I can be real helpful to trades people, to escrow people, to title people, to agents. I'm always referring business. So the Home Depot thing is one thing. It's just get a really good idea of what materials cost. And then you can do some square footage stuff. You know, I've got a piece of granite is 300 bucks and for a nine footer. And I got to do the kitchen and, and both bathroom vanities. So I'm going to need, I don't know, three nine-footers or two nine-footers. And so you can get that number together, and then you can just price out a sink, garbage disposal. Uh, the cabinets are surprisingly easy to kind of design that. Uh, you know, take measurements. Uh, then you just look at your standard flooring and how much tile and how much uh, laminate. You know, most people are going tile laminate and, you know, maybe carpet in the bedrooms. You figured all that out. Oh, maybe you need windows. So start pricing that out. You don't have to spend a lot of time to start to get a good feel about what the material costs. And then when it comes to the labor, you have to meet with people, have people walk the house with you and find out what it is they're proposing. And then you just have to manage the project. You don't give them a whole bunch of money. You buy the materials yourself. And until you get a trust level with them and some experience with them, even my guy now, he, I don't give him a lot of money up front. He doesn't even ask for it. <laughs> so, you know, when he gets halfway, he gets some bread and you have milestones. If somebody's moving along, doing a good job, then keep the money flowing, keep it going. If they're dragging, then you hold the money back. Somebody mentioned that when I was um, doing some research, somebody mentioned that you do well with REOs. That, that, that was kind of your, your thing, Re dealing with realtors, dealing with banks. What is the deal with that? Are you, are you still getting REOs today? No, no. no. I, I, you know, when the market was giving a lot of REOs right after the crash, that was kind of my product of choice. Now, why is that? 
Well, if you went on the MLS in 2009, 10, 11, you know, especially early on, there was just most of the market were bank-owned sales. That's what was there. Now, there was a lot of competition for them as well. And my competition was a lot more experienced and a lot more well-heeled than I was. But I still had a nice little run with REOs. But then I quickly kind of switched over to buying short sales. And, you know, when we had a lot of distressed inventory, there was a lot of short sales and REOs. REO is a bank-owned house. It's a house that the bank took back in a foreclosure sale. So, you know, somebody owned the house, didn't make their house payment, and the foreclosure process uh, commenced and went through its natural cycle, and nobody bought the house at the auction steps, so it ended up back in the bank's inventory. Then the bank lists it with a real estate agent. A short sale is a situation where the person is not making their payment or has not made their payment for a long time. And, you know, maybe the loan is, say, $500,000, but the house is only worth two fifty. dollars And so in a short sale, you basically negotiate with a bank and ask them to take short or less of the loan balance. And uh, so I was able to do a lot of those successfully and continue to work on short sales. Not so much with bank inventory. There's very little of it. And the kind of the, the competition for it pays a lot more for it than I would like to. All right. That's a wrap. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please go ahead and subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever you use. It really helps me keep producing these. Just search for the deals today podcast in your podcast directory podcast app so if you're not on my daily email newsletter and you want to be and you want to receive the free 40 days to find a deal seminar go ahead and go to realestateaudios.com slash flipping again that's realestateaudios.com slash flipping 